Welcome. Happy Sunday, 99. Uh, my name is Joe O. My students call me Mr. O. Um, just glad to be here with you this morning. Um, and uh, it's been a while since I had a chance to like sit with Mickey and Krista, but we got to catch up with them over the weekend. Um, it must have been a while because I noticed he has tattoos now. You know, he's been working out. <laughs> he's like, you know, but we go way back. Um, many of you probably know he's a rapper. Um, he's an artist, a musician, and um, we're in like this studio space. We're sitting here from um, the place where you guys often gather on Sundays, um, this artist creative space. And just reminds me of a project he started. I don't know if he ever revealed it, but um, I remember the title was something called Creation of Man. So I urge you to ask him what Creation of Man is and if he'll share it with you. So anyway, enough of that. Um, again, um, really happy to be here. Um, I was actually born in San Francisco. Uh, my father immigrated here about 40 years ago. Um, and he came to this country um, not knowing how to speak English. Um, I would say he still doesn't know how to speak English um, that well. Um, but uh, he planted a church in San Francisco, and it's kind of where I grew up um, uh, in, in this city. So driving back in, it's kind of like a little bit of a homecoming because I don't come to San Francisco too often anymore. And um, just driving in and seeing, like, the fog, just all of a sudden it just made me feel like I'm coming back home. So it's, it's special to be here. So um, thank you guys for having me. Um, there's so much I could share, but um, I was also a children's pastor um, at my dad's church, which was really interesting. Um, but one thing I really loved about being a children's pastor was uh, just how honest kids are. Like, right now I can't see any of you. So if you guys are, like, have other tabs open um, or, like, you know— doing something else, like, I don't know. Uh, But with kids, like, when you're, like, talking or preaching to kids, like, they tell you right away. I've had kids, like, sigh in the middle of my sermon. When I say middle, I mean, like, three minutes into my message and be like, oh, it's so boring. (laughs) And and you can't get mad at them because they're just being honest. They're just kids, right? Um, But I really love just the the honesty and the purity of um, their hearts and after I'd been their children's pastor for a couple months, I remember saying like something like taking a poll. You know, I want to see how I'm doing. So in a room full of like 20 kids, I'm like, so who here uh, wants to follow Jesus? And, you know, the kids, they all raise their hand. They go, me. And like, I could have probably said anything. And they would have been like, me, pick me. Um, except for one girl. She was the oldest. She's a little bit wiser, right? They were mostly like seven, eight years old, but she was like 10. And so she's like, she's kind of sitting there like leaning back. You know, um, and I looked at her and I was like, oh, yes, this is what I want. Um, so I said, hey, you didn't raise your hand. She's like, no. And it's like, can you tell us why you don't want to follow Jesus? And I was so hoping she would say what she said. And she said, because. I was like, why? She's like, I don't want to die. And all the kids just looked at her like, what? And she's like, you always talk about how Jesus died on the cross. And that if we follow him, we have to die. So I don't want to follow him. But I don't want to go to hell either. So I don't know what to do. I feel like maybe some of us have not or maybe find that kind of familiar. Where um, we're trying to follow Jesus, but at the same time we're not completely yet sold out or bought in. When we talk about following Jesus, um, followers is, is a term that we have a lot now, especially because of Instagram. You know, how many followers do you have? 
Um, I teach uh, mostly middle schoolers, although last year I taught fourth grade, but um, for the past couple of years I've been teaching math um, to eighth graders. And, um, you know, when Instagram first came out, now Instagram is kind of like for the older people, which I'm like, what? And then they're like, you have Facebook? My parents have Facebook. Um, but now, like, they're all on the TikTok, right? And, uh, you know, I don't have one. I, I'm like, I've kind of, like, drawn the line of, like, I'm old. And I'm 42. I'm like, I'm just not. Maybe I should get a TikTok. Um, I'll talk with Nikki afterwards. He probably has one. You know, you find creation of man on TikTok. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like, like my, my students used to make fun of me because my Instagram is private. Um, I was showing them a picture once. I probably shouldn't have done it. But it was of my kids. And then instantly, they're not looking at the picture. They're looking at my handle. They're like, oh, I know your handle. I'm going to follow you. And they're like, Mr. O, you only have 200 followers. Oh, my gosh. And they're making fun of me because I have so few followers. Um, and on Instagram, it's, it's easy to be a follower. You find someone that you like that puts out content that you're interested in, um, that you want to learn from, and you follow them. And the moment that they start putting out stuff that's not interesting or you don't agree with, you can either mute them or unfollow. Um, but that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? And I've seen some people um, come to church, maybe even for years, and then the word we use is fall away or kind of drift away. And honestly, growing up in the church, being 42, I've just hit a point in my life now where I'm like, God, what does it really mean to be a follower, to be a disciple? So I'm going to let Jesus say it in his own words. Um, Matthew 16. I'm reading from the CSB translation. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He kind of lays out right there what it means to, or what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Um, In the biblical times, teachers had disciples or followers. And these followers, you could tell that someone was a follower of a certain person because they dressed like them, they walked like them, they talked like them. Um, in some sense, like we still have that today, right? By the way we dress, we kind of identify which tribe we're a part of, um, the way we style our hair, the kind of foods we eat, what the posts on our Instagram kind of tell us who we're following. Um, and back then it was very easy to see, oh, this person is a disciple of John. Oh, this person is a disciple of that um, teacher or rabbi. Um, but what does it look like in 2020 to be a follower of the disciple of Jesus. I mean, one of the first things he says is that if anyone wants to follow after me, you have to deny yourself. One of the markers, identifiers of a follower of Jesus is that you deny yourself. 
Um, it's a discipline. Um, one of the ways that um, I've engaged in this part of denial is fasting. Um, I love to eat. Anyone that knows me knows I love to eat. My wife sometimes remarks, like, how much I eat. Um, and fasting has really taught me um, what it means to deny yourself. Now, here's the thing. I used to believe um, that God was against my desires, right? Why else would he create a Garden of Eden and then tell Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree? Because he wants to dangle things in front of us that we desire and to say, no, you can't have it for whatever, in my mind back then, arbitrary reasons. Um, but I've come to realize, actually, as we deny ourselves, it is not the um, killing of our desires that God wants to do. It's actually the resurrection of our, de- of our desires. He wants to not only just reorder our desires, but purify our desires. Um, as I walk through this process of denying myself, it's actually realizing, no, he's for me. There's a, there's a psalm that says, um, I run along the paths of your command, for you have set my heart free. And it, and it just hit me when I read that where, wait, a path seems so limiting. Like, I just want to wander into the frontier, into the jungle, into the, into the swamp. Like, why limit me to a path? But I thought of like a car or even like a Lamborghini, Ferrari, whatever, have, whatever sports car you have. Like, it can hit over 200 miles per hour. But it can't do that when it's on a unpaved trail. When it's on the path is when it is free to go as fast as it was designed to go. And I realized, God, when I deny myself and follow your path, you're actually wanting to set me free. That's where the true freedom comes from. So we need to deny ourselves. The second thing that he says, though, is to take up our cross. And this is the place where it speaks to us of um, our privilege. Now, a lot of times when I heard people say, like, in Christian language, like, oh, that's my cross. They're, like, complaining about their boss, right? Like, oh, my boss, or maybe my pastor. Oh, my pastor. You know, he's so artsy and creative. He doesn't do anything, like, um, tangible. It's just, like, lights and smoke and music and, you know, whatever you're complaining about. Or you're complaining about your relationship. Or your lack of relationships. Or, like, your, your weight. Or your financial situation. Or, but that's your cross. That's your personal burdens that you have to bear. Um, but I would say that when, when, he's, when Jesus says, take up your cross, when Jesus took up the cross, it wasn't just his personal burdens. He was taking up the cross for the sins and the burdens of the world. That when we take up our cross, it's not just about taking up our burdens, but it's about taking about the burdens of the people around us. And it's as much about laying down our privilege. It says the scriptures, um, there's a lot of talk right now, and I think it's a great conversation about the privilege that we have. Right? And we talk about white privilege and white supremacy and what it means to lay down that, that white privilege and to recognize it first, and then how can we lay that down? Um, there's something called God privilege. It says that Jesus, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to even death on a cross. Right? Even before like this race equity conversation that we are finally, hopefully, having now— Jesus modeled that for us. He had God privilege. He laid that privilege down. He's privileged but not entitled. He laid that down. That was his cross, and he took up our cross, right? It's this idea of being able to sacrifice our privilege. So even in the sense of fasting, my wife who's um, going on this fast right now, 
Do you know that Daniel fast? If you don't know about Daniel in the Bible, there's a time where they're taken exile. They're brought before Babylon. Um, and they're being fed all the, great, the best foods because they're being trained to become the wise men of Babylon to serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king at that, that, that time. And they're being fed meats. But the meat's been offered to idols. And so Daniel says, don't give us any of the meat. Just give us the veggies. Um, and the, the person in charge says, I can't do that because the king will be upset with me. And Daniel said, just test us in this. They come back and they find out, oh, wow. The people, you Hebrews that have been eating the vegetables um, are even healthier than the people who have been, been eating the meat that have been sacrificed to God, um, to the other gods. And it's not so much of like an anti-meat and like pro-veganism argument. There's also an, uh, an element of privilege. Like meat was not readily available to the common person. It was a symbol of wealth. Um, to be able to eat meat every day meant you were in the upper echelon, the elite of elites. Um, it wasn't just a fast from meat. It was a fast from privilege. Um, it's been something that God has been speaking to us, like fasting from privilege, fasting from, man, buying everything organic. Like, you know, fasting from my supplements, fasting from my, um, you know, instead of calling an Uber or, or driving my car, like taking public transportation. Um, there's a sense in a, in, a, in a fast of laying down um, our entitlements. Um, but here's the thing that I wanted to make, or the point I wanted to make about this is in Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he, Im- he endured the cross, but scorned the shame. See, in this part, when we um, take up the cross, the first part, when we deny ourselves, that's about God working on our desires and our discipline. But when we take up the cross, it's not about God just um, taking things away from you and you having to be disciplined. It's actually the place where, like Jesus says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, but scorned the shame. In this part, when you take up the cross, this is the place where Jesus wants to kill the shame in your life. But there's no way that you will take up the cross unless you can see the joy set before you. In fact, if all you've ever done is take up the cross, but you've never seen the joy, you have not taken up the cross. You've engaged in some kind of legalism, which just leads to like resentment, um, bitterness. Um, like you need to understand the joy set before you. Otherwise, why take up this cross? So when Jesus says like, hey, um, you're going to go through pain. You're going to go through loss. You're going to go through suffering. Who's in? Not me. Unless you can see the joy set before you. Like my Sunday school student, not me. Who wants that? right? Unless you can see the joy set before you. That's the only thing that will make it worth it. And it's in this place of where we, where we take up our cross and he kills the shame in us. The things enough that, and a lot of times shame is like from our past, the things that we've done that we regret. Um, and shame tells us like, not just like you've made a mistake, but that you are a mistake. And not only that you are a mistake, but you are forever that mistake. Like 10 years can pass, 20 years can pass. And you're still like, why did I do that? Like, why? And you regret it. And you hate yourself. You can even hate yourself for the decisions that you've made, right? That's shame. It keeps you prisoner. And when you take up your cross, Jesus wants to kill that shame on the cross and free you to take up the burdens of others. The third thing he says is, and follow me. Right? We were like, I'll be follow Jesus. Jesus, I follow you, man. He's like, wait, wait. First, have you denied yourself and your desires and let me purify them? Second, have you taken up your cross, laid down your entitlement and privilege, and let me work on your areas of shame and picked up the burdens of others? And third, now you can follow me. 
there's something I want to share with you quickly. It's a framework. Well, I don't know about quickly, but it's a framework. Um, and it's not Bible, but it's biblical. And um, I feel like frameworks are helpful. And so it's called the stages of faith. Um, stage one is when there's this awe and awareness of God. Uh, many of you guys might have had this come to Jesus moment or conversion moment um, where all of a sudden you're like, he is real, right? And, and you're like, God loves me and he's real. And um, you, there's just this feeling of love and awe and like just being connected to God. Um, when we get stuck, though, is if our sense of unworthiness and shame overwhelm our sense of love and awe of God. Um, and how we move past this first stage is usually with a strong support group, like people in your church, um, your spiritual family, your family at home, if they're also believers. Like, with that strong support, you're able to move into the next stage, which is stage two. And I think uh, Mickey will have, like, an, a little graphic for you. Stage two is um, the place where you feel like, I am learning, right? Like, maybe you're starting to, like, really read the Bible and study the Bible, or the messages are, like, speaking to you and they're interesting and they're applicable you're learning and you also have a sense of belonging like it's not just you and god it's like wow there's a family like i'm a part of this 99 community and i meet other like-minded people and even though we're different there's this thing that's unifying us and i'm a part of a community and i i feel like i can start to be known here and belong um and so there's a sense of security that really starts to take root and that's a good thing we can get stuck in this stage though if it becomes a us versus them and just by your name, 99, I know, like, that's one of the core values is we never want to be a us versus them. Like, we're the 99 that is going with Jesus for the one. Um, to move to stage three is when you start to acknowledge, um, not only am I learning and belonging here, but I have a unique contribution to make. I have unique gifts and talents. Um, and stage three is where we begin to, like, serve God and work for God. Like, you get involved in your church. Maybe it's through... Um, your technology or your creative gifts or you're like, I don't know what I can do, but I can like send out emails to people or call people or say hi. Whatever it is you're, you're trying to use and not just on Sundays, but in your workplace. You're like, the gifts that I have, I'm using in my workplace to serve other people. That's when you're in stage three. You're working for God. Um, but here's where we can get stuck. Um, when we feel like we need to always feel like we need to do something. Um, there's a sense of like overachievement of like, okay, that's done. What do I have to do now? Or this feeling of, okay, I haven't done anything in a while. What's the next project or thing that I need to do? Um, and a weariness. Just like, you're just tired. You're just like, you know, Mickey or Krista might be like, okay, now we're doing this and we're launching this. And you're like, okay, here comes another one. There's just sense of weariness. Um, but here's how you progress to stage four. It's often through a personal crisis. And the loss of certainty, things that you once thought were true or you, that you knew or were secure, that sense of security is now gone. You feel disoriented. Um, and I want to say to you, if you're feeling that in your f faith and stage walk with God and you're starting to be like, okay, I need to reexamine everything now. I just don't know what's, what's true. Um, that's actually what moves you in your stages of faith. It's actually essential and necessary. It's actually a sign of maturing and growing. It's not a sign of losing your faith. Um, and it moves us to stage four where it's often marked by a life crisis or a crisis of faith. Um, it is the loss of certainty. Things that you're like, I know this for sure. Now you're like, I, 
only know that I'm confused and I'm trying to find the answers and I'm reading all sorts of things and things are conflicting and I just don't know anymore. Um, you're deconstructing things, right? We're, or we're decolonializing our theology. Um, but it's a great thing because you had this idea of God and he no longer fits inside your box. You had this idea of this is who God is and God is like, I'm actually a lot bigger than that. And here's the thing. God is like, let's say he's this big and your box was this big. It doesn't mean what you thought of God was wrong. It just means it can't contain all of him. It doesn't fit all of who God is. So I would not say like throw everything away. Some things you might need to like change. But there are things that were definitely true from stage one that are still true in stage four. But it's just not the complete picture of God. He's just too big. Um, But it's also... um, marked by our searching for answers. But we get stuck when we're always looking for answers, always looking for different podcasts, a different teaching, um, but we never can recognize the truth. And what helps us to move from stage four into stage five is actually um, the cost of obedience and obedience that costs us something. I'm not going to dive into that too deeply, but it's not just I'm following all the commandments, but it's like you are obeying God and there's an actual cost that you can recognize in following him. Um, and there's often pain associated with that cost. But that's what moves us into stage five, the stage where from this inward journey of stage four, we are now in this outward journey of stage five where <clears throat> we're living in this place of freedom and forgiveness and healing. And, and these people, but wait, if you look at the graphic, I skipped over something um, and it's called the wall. Now, I don't know if you ever played this game called the game of life. And I don't mean like, like life, you know, or like, I mean, like, there's an actual board game called The Game of Life. It's a horrible board game. I played it because the older kids that I knew, we had Candyland and, and The Game of Life, and we just go back and forth between two. I think you would roll a die, and if it said three, you would move three spaces and pick a card and be like, you got a job. Yay. Like, but I, 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 the only thing I really remember about this game, um, other than that you had, like, a little car thing and a little thing you put inside that was who you are, game piece, um, was that no matter what you rolled, you had to stop at this one square that said marriage. And being like six or seven, I was, I was like, eh, I don't want to get married. And I'd be like, I rolled a four, so I have to move past it. And I don't know if these are the actual rules, but the, the kids I played with, I was like, no, you have to stop. It doesn't matter if you rolled a one or a six. You have to stop and you have to get married. It's kind of like the wall. In your spiritual life with God, doesn't matter who you are, you will hit the wall. And some of you are like, man, I thought that life crisis and faith crisis and loss of certainty, like that sounds like a wall to me. Um, but the wall is, is even deeper than that. The wall is the process of how we get from stage four to stage five. The wall is a place where, um, as one author said, the mystery of our will meets the mystery of God's will face to face. Um, It's also described as the realization that fixing others, overhelping others, codependency, codependency or excessive enabling of others is not selfless service. Up until this point, we're like, I'm working for God. I'm doing all these things. I'm serving. Um, They betray a sense of low self-esteem and a desire to control. This is the place where Jesus is like, and the Holy Spirit and God are like, I I see what you're doing. Like you're trying so hard to serve me. But I want to go deeper into your heart. 
And there are things I want to touch to free you so that when you are serving others, you're no longer trying to heal yourself by healing someone else. Because you came from a broken family, you're drawn to broken people, right? Like, this is a place where I want to heal you and free you so that when you go out and now you serve, there's just like this deep sense in stage five of, of calm that emanates from people who've gone through the wall. Um, often the wall is the place where you have to face a lot of pain, um, suffering, If you follow Jesus, you are going to suffer. If you don't follow Jesus, you are going to suffer. That's one thing Buddha got right. He said life is suffering. Um, I disagree with his conclusions. I follow another teacher, um, Rabbi Jesus. um, And I don't think it's the attachments. Um, I don't think God wants to eliminate our desires. I think he wants to give life to our desires. Um, But there is a lot of pain. And we often medicate with pain. For me, my drugs of choice are often um, the internet, Netflix. Um, in the past, it's been things like pornography, things to just medicate. Now I, I realized, you know, I was like, oh, God, thank you. You set me free from pornography. And, like, you're, you're radically changing my idea of sexuality, even now, of what sexuality really is. Um, and then I realized, oh, wow, I just watched a different kind of porn. I, I didn't mean to talk about porn. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sorry, but uh, it wasn't in my notes. I didn't write porn. But I was like, hey, like now my porn is, is one with a big budget, special effects, and good acting um, that I call Game of Thrones. Um, I don't watch that low-quality budget porn that you guys watch. Um, just so even realizing in, in, in my own walk of what God is doing in my life. So I'm not telling people like, oh, if you watch Game of Thrones, oh, you porn watcher. No. Um, I'm just saying there's like this radical like working that God is doing in me. That was a side note. Um, But getting back to the wall, um, there's this place of uh, pain and loss and suffering that God is is working. Um, I have two beautiful children, two beautiful daughters. Um, It's a little strange um, when I have daughters and people, oh, you have kids? Yeah, I've got two kids. Um, Boys, girls, I'm like, I've got two daughters. And I've heard it several times where people go, oh, what did you do to deserve that? And I'm like, uh, and I've heard it from men and women. And I think it's kind of a cultural thing to say. And people just say it maybe without meaning. Um, Or they say, oh, you've got daughters. Man, you better get your shotgun ready. And I'm always like, my daughters are going to be like their mother, full of wisdom, um, you know, full of, like, integrity, beauty, um, like, they, I, I don't need to, like, get a shotgun. Like, I'll teach them how to shoot a shotgun themselves. And I'll stand there with them. But I don't need to, like, scare boys off. Like, they're not. Anyway, um, that, that still bothers me. Um, but all to say, like, I, and my students always ask me, do you want a boy or a girl? And I'm like, I honestly, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I'm curious what a boy version of me would look like. There, maybe there's some vanity there, right? <laughs> it's like, but my wife is much better looking than me. So I'm like, what would a better looking version, like mixed with my wife look like? You know, how I see myself in my head. Um, so when, when my wife told me that, um, we're, that, you know, she was pregnant, but we're pregnant, right? Um, I, my, the first time I was a little like, when they told me that, when she told me that we were pregnant um, with my first child, I was a little bit nervous and scared. Like, am I ready? You know, um, and, and then, uh, you know, our ch- Olivia was born and a lot of hard work, um, but a joy, right? And then we got pregnant again, and I was less nervous and scared and, and more excited. And now my second daughter, Junia, 
um, who's one of the female apostles in the Bible. So we, we're definitely making, taking like a, a theological stance by naming her Junia. Because some people debate that it's actually Junia, it's a male name. Um, but the early church didn't believe that. So we're just going to go with the early church on that one. Um, and then so when my wife told me um, two years ago, oh, we're pregnant again. By this time, just enjoy, and it's hard work. I'm not, I'm not overlooking that at all. I'm just saying, oh, kids are just amazing. They are amazing. They're also like very um, self-absorbed, and it's a lot of hard work and a lot of poopy diapers and explaining things over and over again. Um, by, the th- by our third child, I was so excited, and it was like, it just feels right. Like, it just feels right. There should be five of us. Um, and then all my students, boy or girl, boy or girl, I'm like, it, I really don't matter. I've ha- I have two amazing daughters. If I have three amazing daughters, that's fine. If I have a son, that's fine. Like, I just want a healthy child. Um, and my wife goes, um, and we're also like, we've had friends who have like fertility issues, and I haven't known like how hard it is for some people to conceive. Um, and they've been trying for years, and, and it's been hard. And friends were asking us like, how did you do it? And we're like, how did we do it? Like, how did you get pregnant? And we're like, oh, we just, um, we, we had sex, right? And like, they're like, no, no, like, special techniques or times of the month and you measure things and you eat things and diets and we're like no we we just had sex we're like we should we should get pregnant and we had sex and a week later we're pregnant that's kind of how it's happened every time um always healthy pregnancies um and then i got a call from my wife one day and i i come home and she's just crying and she just says there's no heartbeat and i was like i just hugged her She said, I went in, and, and there's, there's no heartbeat. And I kind of, like, cried with her for a little bit, and I said, okay, all right, God, I'm coming to you. There's no heartbeat. I'm going to pray. And I'm not the person that, like, if someone's sick, I run over there, can I pray for you for healing right now? Or stands up after I preach, anyone needs healing? I'll pray for you. Um, I've struggled to believe that God heals. Like, I'm like, I could pray for a cold because eventually – you know, you will get healed, hopefully. And, and God created your body and the antibodies and this wonderful immune system. And we just pray that that strengthens and activates. Um, but like praying for a broken leg to be healed in that moment or for the dead to come to life. Um, but, you know, this is my child. So I was like, God, I'm going to pray. And then I asked our church to pray. And I, I went to my pastors, like, can you pray with us? And one of my pastors actually had the same thing where they've been trying to get pregnant for like nine years. Finally got pregnant, and during one of the uh, hospital visits, um, there was no heartbeat. She called her husband, um, and they just prayed and prayed, and they went back, I think, a couple days later, and there, there was a heartbeat. Um, and there were some signs and confirmations, <clears throat> and I, it, t- it did take me to a place where I said, God, like, I'm not, di- I'm not afraid to be disappointed. Like, I can pray for this, and if it doesn't happen, I'm not going to be disappointed. I'm not going to be bitter, but I'm going to believe. And I just believed, and we went into the hospital, and they ran the test. And there's such a, a spirit of death sometimes in a hospital, like a certainty of the outcome. And we walked in, and I was like, Can, I know you said this. Um, I believe in medicine. I believe in science. But those things cannot help my child. So I've prayed, and I just want you to check one more time for the heartbeat. And so the doctor set it up, and they rolled the thing over, and I saw nothing. There was just nothing. There was there was no heartbeat. And our son was already with Jesus. 
And I wasn't disappointed in a sense of like, oh, I wish I hadn't believed or tried or that was stupid or, you know, there are times in the past I've been angry with God. In that moment, I, w- I wasn't angry with God. I was just overcome with grief, with sadness, with loss. And it doesn't jive with the gospel I'd heard before of like, if you follow God, he has a plan for your life and like, things are hard, he'll make it better. And there are elements of that that are true. But in that moment, I was just at a wall. You know you're at a wall when things that you've done before that work no longer work. When you're like, man, I just walk into church and the music's playing and I just, I feel it. I can just lift my hands. I can just, I can just join in with everyone else and just feel connected to God. Like, I would just open my Bible and read the Bible and um, it would, something would speak to me. I would listen to a message and like, it would make sense. It would speak to directly what I'm going through or it made sense. Um, I would show up for home group and I would leave feeling energized and charged and so connected. Like, you know you're at the wall when the things you have done before, they just don't seem to work. Your spirituality feels broken. Things don't work anymore. The answers that were answers before only lead to questions now. That's when you're at the wall. But it's at this place where God wants to mature you. And maturity, like, I've heard, like, you want to grow up before you grow old. Like, the amount of time you spend at church, it's not maturity. Um, After, like, 40 years of kind of, like, I guess, being born into the faith, but having to make it personal on my own, of course. um, Like, most messages I, I listen to, I don't hear a new thing. And the longer you stay in church and the more podcasts you listen to, You've, you've kind of heard everything. You know the points that the preacher is going to make. You probably know the points I'm going to make. Um, so the amount of knowledge you've consumed is not the sign of maturity. The amount of time, how much you've aged in a church community is, is not maturity. The mark of maturity is transformation. Like how transformed you are. You could actually know only a little bit of theology. Accurate theology, but only a little bit. Only know a few scriptures. But you've been deeply transformed by Jesus and the Spirit of God. You are mature. You are mature. And that's what, that's what I hungered for. That's what I long for. That's my prayer for you, 99, is that you are deeply transformed. Because if you've been in church for a long time without transformation happening, man, no one likes being a hypocrite. No one likes feeling inauthentic. And there's this war. But it's an invitation from God of saying, like, I'm bringing you to a wall. I'm bringing you to a place where I want to take you deeper, into a place of deeper healing and freedom to transform you. Because you cannot get transformed without facing your pain. Stage five and stage six, um, stage five is the place where people are marked by a sense of deep calm and deep care. But you're no longer stressed out when people aren't changing. You're no longer raging when people keep making bad decisions. You care for them, but you're no longer upset. Like, I gave them the advice, but they went back to that relationship, or they did this thing, or they're still in that addiction. Um, You care for them, but you're not angry with them for not listening to you. Much like God and Jesus, so patient with us when we don't listen to him. And he's like, choose life, and we keep choosing other things. Um, and then stage six is the place of like what they call the transcendent life of God, just filled with wisdom and compassion, and you're just completely abandoned to God, the place where like we want to be. And I don't think that we just always go in a linear step. I think sometimes it's things cycles. Like we're in a place where we've been set free. We go through the wall. 
we're in a place of newfound freedom and we call it sometimes a new season and we're so close to God and, and then we can find ourselves going back into these other stages. And it just means there's, there's more work, there's more to God and there's more that God wants to do in you. Um, here's the thing about following God. It ultimately comes down to trust because there are times you won't agree with God and he wants to go this way and you want to go that way. Or you want to go, but he wants to stay. Or you want to stay, but he wants to go. He says, follow me. It means like you've got to be close to him. You've got to hear him. You've got to see him. And ultimately, that's how we become transformed is by following him. I just want to leave you with this um, last thing right here. And um, it's a story that I heard, and I don't know if it's true. Um, Most stories, I I tell it from my life. But this one, I was just reminded of today as, as I was thinking about U99. Um... And there's a story of this actor, Shakespearean actor, who was invited to, like, just recite some poems and Shakespeare plays. And um, there was a, a request to recite Psalm 23. And um, somehow, after he recited it, I guess, um, there was also another priest there. And, you know, and when, after he recited it, everyone's applauding and clapping. And he knows when to get dramatic, and he has great dynamics. Um, and when to get quiet, and when to put the trevor in, tremble in his voice, and... Then there was a minister, and some of them were like, hey, minister, can you also recite Psalm 23? And um, the minister kind of shyly walks up there, and everyone listens. And the, minute, the pastor is not as eloquent, not as um, trained, not, not as smooth, not as good. Um, and he just says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me besides the still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by the still waters, and he restores my soul. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you're with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And after the the minister finishes Psalm 23, like, there's no applause. Everyone's just quiet. And the story says that, you know, some people are crying. And the great renowned actor stands up. And he just says to the minister, I know Psalm 23. But you know the shepherd. And 99, that's my prayer for you, is that you will know the shepherd, that you will know as you are fully known. And I believe that this message was for you. And whatever stage you're at, that you are known, and that you will fully know as you are fully known. God bless you. I will continue to pray for you. And one day I hope to meet you in person. Um, also, Mickey and Krista have invited us to stick around afterwards and um, live pray for you, pray for some of you. And so um, I'll see you there. Um, thank you again for having me. Um, happy Sunday.